Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. What up, Cash? Twice in one week. I feel like this is maybe our first week of the season where we've actually gotten two episodes in. Yeah, I was going to say, we're back, baby. We're back to two a week, or at least trying to do two a week uh, in between our busy work schedules. And we are excited about it. Sitting here on this Friday morning after a four-game night in the NBA, we are about 15% of the way through the schedule, if you can believe it, because time moves quickly in life in general, but in pro sports and in the NBA especially. So what we're going to do today, we've talked a lot about the Eastern Conference, I feel like, uh, already this season. I mean, we've, between... Uh, an episode on the the Bucks and the Hawks, and then our last episode on the kind of second tier of the East. We've basically talked about five, and we talked about the Sixers in an earlier episode too. So we've talked about almost almost all of the important teams. We talked about the Nets shitstorm. Uh, we haven't really given proper attention, I don't think, to the Western Conference and some of the movers and shakers out there. So what we plan to do today is talk about the teams surprising and disappointing. And I guess the teams disappointing are also surprising. They're just surprising in the wrong way. Uh, But we are going to talk about the teams that have surprised us good or bad so far this season. So uh, Wolfon, unless you want to uh, banter about something meaningless to start the show, uh, if not, we can get right into it. Yeah, go for it, man. No no meaningless banter from me today. All right, well, I'd say we have to start one play. I know, I mean, some people might say we'd have to start with the defending champions uh, toiling away near the bottom of the conference, but I'd say, and I think you'd agree, we have to start with the Utah Jazz. Expected almost unanimously to be near the bottom of the Western Conference, near the bottom of the league after trading Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Boyan Bogdanovich, and Royce O'Neal to stockpile draft picks and, you know, quite obviously position themselves for the future and position themselves in a way where maybe they are strategically losing this season. And it looked like the kind of team and the kind of season that was over before it even began. And lo and behold, 15% of the way through the schedule, the Utah Jazz at 10-3 and sit atop the Western Conference standings and second overall behind only Milwaukee. I mean, I've got a bunch of talking points. I actually have a a piece going up on the Score app about some of the reasons to believe in their hot start, but uh, I'll throw it over to you. What have you seen from Utah so far this season that makes you believe? And again, it's not even like make, okay, they're not going to play at a 740 pace, whatever it is that they're on right now. That would be like a 63-win pace. They're obviously not going to do that. But what have they done that makes you think them being a competitive team is for real and they're not, you know, just like, a game away from bottoming out. Well, they have the second-ranked offense in basketball. The win profile has been super impressive. Like, they're not really beating up on cellar dwellers. And even if they were, like, they were supposed to be one anyway, so that would still be impressive. But they're beating good teams routinely. And the process behind all of it just looks really good and kind of sustainable. I've mentioned before, like I thought the offense had a chance to remain pretty good, but the defense was where I expected them to fall off. And I still do think that like they're 10th in defensive rating right now. And I just think at a certain point, the bottom is going to fall out. Maybe not entirely to the point that they wind up being, you know, bottom 10, but I I don't think they're going to be as good on that end as they've been. They're still getting a little bit lucky with opponent shooting. They're still allowing a ton of shots at the rim. And I guess, you know, I would I would say they don't have a ton of individual defensive talent. But as a unit, 
they defend with like impeccable attention to detail. Like they very rarely overhelp. You know, if anything, maybe they underhelp some of the time, but I, I just think they do a very good job, especially of like taking away the three point line. And that's part of the reason they're giving up so many rim shots. Like that seems to be what they're prioritizing, but they kind of move around in harmony. They rotate well, like they communicate, they cover for each other. And so as much as I still, yeah, I don't see them as like a top 10 defense or even like a a top 15 defense. Uh, I think that they can maybe play above their heads a little bit at that end of the floor just because of the connectivity and attention to detail that they're playing with. The biggest thing, and I said this when we talked about them, I don't remember when it was that we talked about them, uh, but it was like part of our early observations in the season where like, I I think I said, you know, if whether or not you believe in the jazz kind of just comes down to whether or not you believe in this version of Lowry Markkinen. And it's getting harder and harder to not believe that this is who he is or who he has become. Like, I think, you know, we might have to start calling the Donovan Mitchell trade, the Lowry Markkinen trade. Like he has been insane. And I mean, you know what it reminds me of? Remember when um, the Thunder traded for Paul George and they sent Oladipo and Sabonis to Indiana? No, don't get me wrong. Depot George is still Paul George. But Oladipo went from like, you know, this kind of like good-ish young player that some people saw potential into like exploding into into an all-NBA caliber player. And that was the joke. It's like, well, the Pacers saw something that no one else did or could get it out of them. And yeah, that that was the joke, right? It was like the Oladipo trade. And it wasn't because Paul George wasn't still awesome. It was because the Pacers got something out of Oladipo and then eventually Sabonis, obviously, too, um, that... Not a lot of people saw, and that that's what this reminds me of, where it's like all-star going the other way, still being an absolute stud, if not better than ever, and Donovan Mitchell. But the guy he went for also just going from like, I don't know, average-ish NBA player. Last year, I think he was pretty good, maybe slightly above mm-hmm. average, just to like, yeah, all-star caliber, if not all-NBA caliber to start the year. That's a great shout. Like, perfect comparison, especially because those were both high lottery picks, you know, like highly touted prospects that just hadn't quite reached their potential until, you know, getting a change of scenery. And I'm marketing obviously had a change of scenery last year. And I think that was really interesting. He was, he was playing a completely different role in Cleveland than he's playing in Utah right now. But I think it prepared him for this in a way because Cleveland sort of introduced this possibility of him being more of a wing than a big. Literally, in the piece going up later today in a few hours, I wrote, like, don't think of him as a big man. He's just a giant wing. Like, he's seven feet, or just about, but consider him and watch the way. Like, he's just a giant wing. He is not a big man, and he's thriving in that role. Yeah, like, watch the way that the Jazz use him on offense, right? Like, they'll use him as a screener and pick and roll from time to time, and I guess if he gets a favorable switch, then they might stick him in the post. But, like, for the most part... They're running him off of pin downs out of the corner. And he is like curling into the middle of the floor as often as he's popping off those pin downs for threes. And he's been basically unstoppable on those curls. Like it's absolutely insane. He's creating for himself off of the bounce. Like I, it's just, I don't know. He's sustained it so far. Uh, maybe there will be a fall off coming at some point. But like if we were picking Western Conference All-Stars right now, I kind of think he'd be a no-brainer. Yeah. all-star in the West, which is insane. Still shooting 65% on twos, 
64% true shooting because the three-point shooting has started to come uh, around a little bit after a rough start in that regard. And the defense has been solid. Like that's another area where I would say the year in Cleveland kind of prepared him for this because he was in this role where he was defending at the three, having to chase guys out on the perimeter, having to navigate screens. And he's just come such a long way at that end of the floor over the last couple of years. And it was one thing for him to be doing it with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen behind him. It's like a totally different thing for him to be doing it with, you know, Jared, Jared Vanderbilt's a great defender, but like yeah. Jared Vanderbilt and Kelly Olynyk behind him is like not really the same thing. No. Well, I was watching the game, the Jazz against the Hawks the other night, and Markkinen was matched up on Trey Young, like on a cross match, basically. And Trey was like dancing with him, dancing with him, dancing with him, like 12 seconds off the clock, couldn't get around him. And then eventually had to call for a screen to get Markkinen screened off. I think he got a Linux, like switched onto him instead. And it's like, Man, if you if you'd have told me a couple of years ago that Trey Young was going to be calling for screens to get Lowry Markin and switched off of him, that would have absolutely blown my mind. I mean, it is still blowing my mind watching it here in 2022. But like, I just uh, I, I'm just blown away by the strides that he's made on both sides of the ball, and I think that's you know the biggest thing powering Utah right now. But it it has been a total team effort, right? Like they continue to just. Move the ball, move the ball, move the ball. They're getting like the dribble penetration they need from Clarkson and Sexton. And like those guys, their ability to penetrate is sort of still able to put teams in the blender, like the way that the Jazz were doing back in the day with like the the heavy pick and roll diet of Mitchell and Gobert. They're doing it in a different way now with spacing bigs and kind of stretching teams out um, almost in the way that like teams were doing to them once upon a time. It's cool to see because it's like a different play style, but it also looks familiar just in the way that they're zipping the ball around it and putting teams in that blender. So I tip my hat to them, man. I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how long they're willing to ride this out and just see yeah. where it goes uh, versus, you know, I don't know if they go on like a three game losing streak. Is that then Danny Ainge's license to say, okay, we had our fun run right, and now it's time to, to trade off some pieces and, and sink to the bottom. Yeah, I mean, I, it's going to be tough. To, I know it's early, but it really is going to be tough to sink to the bottom. Like, they, they they really have to strip this thing down to do it. Like, you get off to a 10-3 and three start, uh, especially with the play-in a factor now, too. Heck, the Jazz, you know, as presently constructed, it's like, can, can you see them going 32-37 and 37 the rest of the way? For sure, they can pull that off. Well, that, that ends up with a winning record at 42 and 40 mm. and you're like firmly in the plate. Like it's hard to bottom out now, right? Unless you completely strip it down. Now, the one thing I will say about Danny age, I don't think like anything that has happened to start other than maybe like a, the marketing breakout, where maybe like they're more solidified in their opinion of him as part of their future. But like short of that, I don't think, you know, the start has dissuaded them from the overall plan. I don't think Danny Ainge would say not trade one of the vet, whether it's Conley, Clarkson, Olenek, whatever, wouldn't trade one of those guys if it means taking a step back from the standings to get more future-minded assets. I don't think he would now not do that because he'd be like, ah, we're 10 and three and we're competing. Like, I, I still think he's sound enough to know what the big plan is here. Okay, so for me, the offense, like, First of all, I think it's really aesthetically pleasing right now. Like they're sharing the ball. They're taking a bunch of threes. They're getting the dribble penetration to create a lot of those shots. Like you mentioned, they've got Markinen playing like a star in the middle of all of it. Um, they're crashing the offensive glass. Defensively, 
I'm with you in that I don't think the bottom's going to completely fall out, but it's going to get worse. Like their defensive shot profile right now, cleaning the glass has them at 17th. That's, you know, the, the only reason they're even that quote unquote good is because they're limiting threes the way they are. Cause yeah, they're, I think second from the bottom and giving up shots at the rim mm. They're even though they're not giving up a lot of long shots, they're still dead last in defensive rebound rate. So the defense will get worse, yeah. I think. But, but I, think I mean, it, that's, we were talking about that with Atlanta too, right? Like that goes yeah. hand in hand with allowing dribble penetration and allowing yeah. a ton of shots at the rim is like, that makes it harder to defensive rebound. Cause usually that requires your bigs to step up right and and contest a shot and that can often leave the defensive glass naked so i think that's part of it one of the big things though in the way that they've done all this is the math advantage they have because they are a very three-point heavy team but because they're making sure their opponents are very three-point averse the jazz so far on average are outscoring outscoring opponents from behind the arc by 15.9 points per game that is massive so the way I see it is like the def- the defense is going to slide, but I think it'll end up being like slightly below average, like say between 15th to 20th kind of thing. But I think the offense will keep humming enough. They'll keep taking enough threes and they'll win that math battle by enough behind the arc that they're going to stay competitive. Like this team is, I-, I think we can clearly see now they are not, even though they might've been intended to be built to bottom out, they are actually not built to bottom out. And then in terms of marketing, the guy's averaging about uh, 23 and eight. Uh, also with a career high in assists. Again, it's only like 2.5 or 2.9, but still the playmaking is very obviously improved compared to what it was been the rest of his career. And in terms of like the being like a seven foot wing, I, I just think it's really entertaining to watch, man. Like some of the stuff he's doing, he's always been, even when I don't think he was living up to his potential, he's always been an efficient scorer for the most part, just because of like his on-ball abilities as a seven-footer and even some of his off-ball abilities too, which we started to see in Cleveland. But some of the stuff he's doing is just like really fun to watch when it's a seven-footer doing it. Like there was a play in their last win against Atlanta where Markinen had been hot already. It's the first half. Uh, the Jazz are getting into their offense, coming up the floor pretty quickly. He catches it somewhat open on the perimeter and everyone's worried like oh shit it's, it's a lot marketing catch and shoot he's gonna bomb this so collins has to run out to him marketing pump fakes him puts it on the floor takes collins from the three-point line down to the basket euro steps him once there finishes this like tough floater over him it's like man that, like that's a seven footer doing that stuff it's it's been so fun uh and remarkable to watch and then even just my last point because you mentioned their win profile and how impressive it's been so like I mentioned, their last win was against Atlanta, who the Hawks were streaking going into that game, had just handed Milwaukee their first loss this season. The Jazz are 5-3 and three on the road and perfect at home, 5-0. and oh. You go through their wins. They blew out the Nuggets on opening night. They come back from 17 down in Minnesota to beat Gobert's Wolves, who we're going to talk about later. They edge the Pelicans uh, in an overtime game after that. They hang 269 combined points on the Lakers through two games, which you might be thinking it's the Lakers, not impressive. Well, going into those two games, the Lakers had the second ranked defense before the Jazz hung 269 over them. In between those wins over the Lakers, they beat the Paul George-led Clippers. They swept a two-game miniseries against the Grizzlies, who are 8-2 and two against everyone else and won 56 games last year. I just mentioned they beat the Hawks. Like, it, this is what I wrote about this morning, where it's like, okay, win profile. Point differential, their fourth overall with net rating as well. Um, their two-way balance, Markkanen's play. Like, you start adding everything up, and it's like there's not a lot to point to here to suggest this isn't sustainable. 
they very much just look like and are playing like a really good team. And it seems batshit crazy. It is. But like, those are just the facts. They're not getting lucky here. They're not beating up on a cream puff schedule. They look like a good team. And it's been just stunning to watch. Yeah. Shout out Mike Conley too. That guy just keeps getting it done. Like, just... you see his great quote the other night? I didn't. Where someone, at, I don't know if it was post game. I mean, the exact details I would have to go confirm, but whether it was post game, pre game, locker room, I don't know. The, the topic of like the, the Jazz, you know, not losing the way they were supposed to came up. And Mike Conley quipped something like, it's like, if they want to lose, they're going to have to trade me too. And I just thought that was great. Oh, yeah. That would be a great way. I mean, obviously, I talked about, you know, marketing being the biggest driver of this, but. If they wanted to start losing more games, trading Conley would be a great yep. way to do it because he's such a huge part of their connectivity on offense. Like he's dude, such Mike an Conley's unselfish. Yeah, averaging a career high in his Mike Conley in year forty-two of his NBA career, seventy-eight years old. Mike Conley is averaging eight plus a career high in assists. Yeah, still just like getting into the teeth of the defense, hitting floaters, making skip passes, like making it work in the pick and roll with all different kinds of role men and poppers. Like I think he's really enjoying playing in the spacing that the, this jazz team is providing him with. Like he's been awesome. Uh, yeah. Just probably like the single best story in the league so far this season, 100%. this Utah team. And uh, we'll see how long it can last. Wolfon, where are we going next? Do we want to stick with the overachievers or should let's, we, let's alter, should we take let's the alternate. mood down a bit? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's balance this pot out by going high and go alternating, going high and low. Uh, okay. So you mentioned the Timberwolves, a team, Unfortunately. <laughs> the, a, a team that the jazz beat that seemed like an impressive win at the time and is now honestly feeling like one of their less impressive victories because holy hell, is this team a mess right now? They're, what's their record? Five and seven? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I don't think they have a single quality win on the ledger. Their losses have almost uniformly been really ugly. The Gobert fit has looked bad. The vibes have been all kinds of off. They, they had a possession the other night against the Suns where they had four players on the floor D'Angelo Russell was sitting at the scorer's table and didn't realize until like 15 seconds into the possession. Came streaking onto the court, but not in time to prevent the Wolves from giving up a wide open three. Just felt like a microcosm of their struggles this season. And I mean, we can get into the minutia. Yeah. Before uh, we about, do that, like, though. Why I'd, and how this is happening, but. Before we do that, too, I'd point out, I, I reference it off the top of last episode actually i mentioned it's like there's a these bunch of things going on around the nba we're not gonna have time to talk about them today and one of the things i mentioned i think you had actually sent it to me or maybe i had sent it to you i can't remember now but anyway uh timberwolves assistant coach mike nori in a halftime interview um talking about like the effort level and things like that that the timberwolves were playing with and saying like it's not good or it's it's a bad sign or something like that like 10 games into the season we're still having to talk about effort austin rivers who's like not even playing much for them uh had some similar comments after that game rudy gobert after the last game that he said something along the lines of like the things that the timberwolves aren't doing it's like the things that you know your parents aren't going to tell you like like or like people aren't going to because no one's watching it and it's like not the sexy stuff but 
it, it was yeah. Rudy Gobert like could have just easily said we're not doing the hard things, but he had to say it in a very Rudy Gobert way, and he went on this like long diatribe about how you know it's the things your parents aren't going to see, but you know stuff coaches will see, whatever. Anyway, I actually like I actually liked that quote. He's like, yeah, no, nobody's going to come up to you and be like, oh man, that was an incredible box out last right. night, but that's the stuff right. that wins games, and he's right. Yeah, I know he is right. He's absolutely right. But I think it's extremely concerning that three weeks into the season. These are the conversations, not just we're having, but like the Timberwolves are having to have about themselves. Like the effort's not consistent. Like, you know, we haven't done anything yet, but we're playing, like we're showing up just expecting to beat these teams. Like we're not good enough to do that. Uh, you know, we got to do the little things better. We have like, you know, they don't realize basketball is a five on five sport. Like there are all these things where it's like, man, it's not just that they're disappointing on the court, that they've been bad, that they like, They've been really dysfunctional. The offense looks disorganized. Cat and Gobert, the fit between Cat and Gobert, like they look confused as hell beside each other. Cat especially. Like it's it's not just that they're playing below expectations. It's how they're getting there. It's how they're losing some of these games. That is the biggest red flag to me. Uh, I want to talk about Ant because I feel like he's sort of been yeah. at the center of this in a lot of ways. But... Before I do, I just want to say he, he was one of the players that I wrote about in my preseason series where I, I listed the eight most interesting players in the league and the kind of swing potential that all of those players had. And almost uniformly, those players have swung in the wrong direction. And that doesn't... The, the very reason that I wanted to write about them and thought they were interesting was because they had the potential to swing not just themselves, but like swing their team seasons in one direction or another. And it's like, okay, we got Ben Simmons in there. Pretty much an unmitigated disaster so far. <laughs> James Wiseman, Yikes. absolutely unqualified disaster. I'm sure we'll get into talking about that when we talk about the Warriors. Yeah. Uh, Kawhi has barely played. Like twice, yeah. Anthony Davis, I actually think, has been really good. He's been the best player on the Lakers, but that just means he's been the best player on a 2-9 and nine team. Uh, and Edwards, man, like... I, I'm I'm really disappointed. I think he's been one of the most disappointing players in the league this season. And I remember talking about how, like, Gobert's arrival, and, and this is something that could take time, so maybe we'll be singing a different tune come the end of the season. But this was really going to give him an opportunity to grow and to round out his game in the ways that it needed to be rounded out. And the biggest one of those was, like, pick-and-roll playmaking and his in-between game. Pull-up mid-range, floater game, lob game, all that stuff that we just haven't seen from him before playing in the pick and roll with Gobert would give him every opportunity to workshop that stuff and to get better at it. So I'll put a couple questions to you to just see if, if you can gauge the kind of progress he has or hasn't made in that regard so far this season. So one thing I looked at, how many times do you think he's assisted on a Rudy Gobert basket so far this year? Anthony Edwards. Yeah. Three, two, two times uh in terms of the in-between game what would you say he is shooting on two point shots outside the restricted area 40 percent, 28 percent. oh my god so it's like the limitations are as glaring as ever and yeah. the fact that he hasn't worked to address them is a big problem yeah because 
like the Wolves are really relying on him to like, I think they were really banking on him to take a big step forward offensively in order for all of this to work. But you just talking about this jogged my memory as well. Cause when I was listing all the, the team slash coaching statements that are very concerning to hear so early in the season, I forgot that in the middle of that, Carl Anthony Towns called out Anthony Edwards for not eating right. <laughs> yeah. And we like, we ragged on cat for doing that. I did it. Because, I, I, well, like, I, it's not, yeah, it wasn't a good look. I don't think he's wrong for doing it. I think he's wrong for doing it publicly. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the general idea. Yeah. I mean, by all accounts, Edward showed up out of shape this year for a, a, the most important season of his career. And yeah. is now like griping about the spacing on the team, which admittedly is not great. Like the spacing isn't yeah. great, but there are ways to work around that. And that kind of starts with, Edwards being able to actually workshop his pick and roll playmaking and his, his in-between game. And he hasn't really done that at all. And it's funny, like, so then part of the issue is like D'Angelo Russell has also been really bad and they were very reliant on him last year. Like obviously the highs with Edwards were higher and the ceiling was way higher, but for the balance of the last season, I think there's an argument to be made that Russell was better. And the fact that he hasn't been able to make it work with Gobert either. And we talked about this a bunch about how even if Ed, uh, Edwards was able to make those kinds of improvements, it was still going to make more sense to, to pair up Russell and Gobert in terms of stagger patterns, in terms of like running pick and roll, like that was going to be the partnership that made more sense. And then have Edwards paired up with Cat to run like the pick and pop game. But even Russell hasn't been able to figure it out with Gobert in the pick and roll yet. Like you mentioned how Cat and Gobert haven't really fit together, but like talking about who's actually assisted on Gobert's baskets this year, the vast majority of those have come from Cat, just in yeah. like high-low action. Um, and so Russell hasn't really nailed that down with him either. And then like Russell on defense, I mean, it, it's not like his limitations went away last year. I just think the Wolves were really able to disguise them with the way that they played where they were able to have him kind of be like a Rover on the back line, quarterbacking rotations, uh, you know, overload in the strong side, things that they were doing in that hyper aggressive scheme last year that he's not able to do this year. And also like, it's a small thing, but Beverly not being there yeah, just makes it harder for them to hide him. And so now it's just like, he's kind of at the top of the floor more than he's at the bottom. He's involved in more ball screen action and his limitations are really coming to the fore where the Wolves and, and D'Lo too, to his credit, were able to disguise them last year. So uh, the, the fact that they were reliant on him last year and, and were obviously going to be really reliant on him this year with the addition that they made, and he's been so terrible, like that's really hurt them as well. Um, but it's, you know, as much as like there have been defensive issues, like the D'Lo thing, Cat really struggling to defend at the four and very much struggling to navigate the screens the teams are running him through when he's guarding stretchier forwards. Their D has actually been mostly fine. Like they're giving up a ton of threes, but they were doing that last year too. And now at least they're coming from above the break rather than the corners. And they've actually been one of the best teams in the league at suppressing and defending rim shots, which like that's the go bear effect for you right. right there. Yeah. 
Um, they've improved a little bit as a defensive rebounding team. Um, not as much as you would have hoped, but they've been better than last year. It's They just need to get the offense sorted out and fast because that's that's been the bigger issue for them so far. I think like they're... If, if they're not bottom 10, they're close to it. I, I thought that their defense would be good this year, but they're more so built to win at the offensive end of the floor. And that just hasn't clicked at all. Is there anything from this start that has you believe it? Like, okay, I know one of your bold predictions that they would finish first in the West, that they were built to win a lot of regular season games. Okay, even yeah. if you're off that, which I assume you are, is yeah. there anything from my mulligan? This... I took the mulligan. Right, that's fine. But is there anything from this wretched start or dis- very disappointing start? It's not wretched. It's five and seven, but it's very disappointing. Is there anything from this disappointing start that you're grasping to a silver lining that makes you think, okay, like there, there is the team I saw, or is this just all like they 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 gotta start from scratch here? I don't mean start from scratch from a roster. I mean, start from scratch in terms of figuring out how to make this roster work. Man, there's not that much to grasp to. Like, this is what's so concerning. It's, there haven't really been any positive indicators, like any sign that this thing's about ready to turn, turn around. Uh, I would point to the rim defense. The fact that I think they're league average defensively overall right now, despite the fact that they're kind of getting burned from, three-point range like I think teams are shooting 38% on above the break threes against them which again they're giving up a lot of so if that starts to normalize that can make a big difference and I think that like rim defense is something that's way more stable than three-point defense uh in terms of effectiveness you know if not volume so the fact that they're doing such a good job of defending the rim which was a big issue for them last year is a good sign huge part of that is Jaden McDaniels like that's maybe been he's been the bright spot so far uh he has become maybe the best secondary rim protector in all of basketball i and he can defend at the point of attack too like he is that dude so i would grasp onto that and say Jaden right. daniels has been awesome i actually think his offensive game is, is showing signs of growth as well so I don't know if the other guys start playing up to their capabilities and they figure out a scheme, I guess that makes a little bit more sense on both sides of the ball. Uh, and if Russell finally, you know, finds that chemistry with Gobert in the pick and roll and Ant decides to get serious about this season, then things could turn around, but that a is, a, that's a lot of ifs. Let's go to a team then that a lot of the ifs have worked for them. That's the Portland trailblazers who are sitting just behind the Jazz at 9-3. and three. The Blazers, I mean, I kind of went on a, a rant about them early in the season when we talked about some early season observations, and one of mine was that the Blazers are just legit good. I guess I'm just going to end up rehashing a lot of the things I talked about then because I think it's still been the story of their season. It's that they still have this incredibly dynamic offensive backcourt with Dame and uh, Anthony Simons. You know, Dame has missed some time with that calf injury. They're keeping him out of back-to-backs, but it hasn't hurt them much. But when he's been in, Dame has, for the most part, looked like the Dame of old. So there, there shouldn't be too many concerns about that, whether he's recaptured that magic. There's more length and defensive upside behind those guys than there has been in a while. Jeremy Grant, like, to me, it's it, it's the perfect role for him where he is more... Like, this role is more of a secondary tertiary offensive option 
definitely suits him more, but he's very capable of elevating when needed. And like, you know, I talked about even early in the season, that win in LA against the Lakers, where it's like, everyone thinks the ball's going to Dame, the Lakers insurance doesn't. And then it gets to Jeremy Grant and it's like, oh yeah, well like this six, nine guy can also like create for himself, put it on the floor when need be. And he gets in the winning bucket. He had an, uh, another game winner for them recently. But the point is like, he is able to create for himself when need be. He can, if Dame's out, he can very easily step into that, you know, second option beside Anthony Simon, sometimes looking like a first option. Josh Hart, uh, who's been great for them since the trade last season, is a beast in transition, also a lengthy defender, like does all this. Nurk uh, has been pretty good to start the year. They still haven't got, like Gary Payton the second hasn't played a game for them yet. And yet they sit here with the sixth ranked defense, by the way. They have a middle of the pack offense right now in the sixth ranked defense. I just think this team sneakily was actually really well constructed. Shaden Sharp has looked good when he's been in there. I, again, it's similar, like with the Jazz, I was like, okay, are they going to play at this clip all year? No. And I, the Blazers aren't either. They're not going to win three quarters of their games and win 55 to 60 games. But the Blazers, I think, both in terms of their, their goals for the season, but also the way the team is constructed, are closer to being this good than the Jazz are to being this good, right? Like the Jazz, I think, will stay competitive if they don't blow it up. The Blazers, I think, will stay good. I think this is a team that can legitimately make noise in the Western Conference playoffs because I think they've been constructed well around Dame, and it's going to be really fun to see how far they can push this. Yeah, I would say I've been convinced now that they are going to be in the Western Conference playoffs. I'm not yet convinced that they're actually going to make noise there. And I think I'm just still a little bit skeptical that the, that the defense is anywhere close to this good. As impressed as I've been, and as much as... like we, This is why we praised their offseason, because they clearly made it a priority and they got the pieces that they needed in order to to bolster their defense. And, and Grant's been fantastic at both ends. Like, his, his self-creation has been... Like, it's the best that I've ever seen from him, including like the first couple months in Detroit where we were all yeah. like, Oh my God, where did this come from? I feel like he has even more wiggle now than he did then. Like I, did you see that move? Uh, admittedly it's Zion, right? Like not, <laughs> not the most yeah, we'll talk about defender, but like he shook Zion with this sort of like hezzy left to right crossover. Is and then just like ex- exploded yeah. past him for a two handed dunk. And it was, I mean, Holy cow. He just looks great. And then in terms of, like they played without Nurkic last night, right? And and they played and Dame, no Dame, no and, Nurkic, and Dame. Night. But I'm I'm more so speaking about the defense and what right. what Grant yeah. had to do, the, the, the him creating for himself for most of that game and winding up with like an efficient 27 points. That's what he was able to do without Dame. And then on the other end, what he was able to do without Nurkic was like anchor the back line of that defense. They played zone for the vast majority of that game with you know Drew Eubanks being the only thing on the floor at any point that passed for a traditional center and Grant was still protecting the hell out of the rim against maybe the most imposing rim scoring team in the league. And I I know we're going to get into talking about the Pelicans and it's hard in a game like that to assign credit or blame. Like did the Pelicans drop the ball? Yeah, they did. Did the Blazers also step up? Absolutely. And Grant, that was a really eye opening performance from him. Like at both ends, he was sublime. So yep. kudos to him. Like they like getting him was obviously a, a terrific move. We haven't seen GP two yet, but I loved them going out and getting him. Um, 
Winslow. Like, yeah, he's been tremendous. And like, so far, his offense has been passable enough that they can keep him on the floor for his defense. I That's the, the thing I, I like don't know if that's going to continue. But then maybe like Gary Payton comes in and they're less reliant on exactly. Winslow defensively. Um, so it's a good balance. It, it's maybe as good as the balance has been there for, you know, at least since they made that Western Conference Finals run uh, a few and- years back, which... Which they did without Nurkic, by the way. So. Right. And their defense that season, I think, finished like 16th or something like that. It was like middle of the pack. But but the years around it, both before and after, they were bottom five consistently. So, yeah. look, obviously other things had to go their way too. And, you know, the nature of a long season, yada, yada, yada. But essentially, if you look at like the last five-ish years, five, six years, the one time, the one time the Blazers even put a semi-competent defense around Damian Lillard, they got to the West Finals. And their defense this season, I think, is better than it was. It's, be- it's constructed better. Like, it, it has a higher ceiling than it did that year. Now, you, I'm not, that doesn't mean the Blazers are going to get back to the West Finals, but I think there's a path there for this team. I know you're not convinced yet. I, I do think there is a path there where, like, they can be in that mix. I think they're, they can be that good. And I think last night's win in New Orleans, while we will talk about the Pelicans and, and how it's partly them dropping the ball too, that's the kind of win... The Blazers just don't get in recent years. Like Dame's out, Nurkic is out too, affects the defense, but especially like Dame's out and they they end up having enough, first of all, offensively to still score enough to get the job. Like that's a road game, no Dame, no Nurk. Second night of a back-to-back. Last year, they get off to that poor start. Dame gets hurt and it's like, well, the season's clearly over. They're going into the tank. Time to retool. This year... Okay, Dame obviously is not wasn't sidelined for that long, but still, when Dame got hurt, you saw the difference in the way the team is constructed this year and, and how they survived and can survive without him. So, yeah, just uh, major kudos to the Blazers, man. They look legit. And, I mean, you just look at their wing rotation, right? Yeah. And, again, go back to that season where they made the Western Conference Finals. It was like Aminu and Harkless, and that was pretty much it. Yeah. Now you're looking at... Jeremy Grant, Josh Hart, Nas Little, Justice Winslow, GP2 when he's back, Shaden Sharp, like Keon Johnson. I mean, that's a lot of wing depth I and a lot of guys who can do a, a lot of different things and a lot of athleticism on the wing, like just things that they haven't really had at any point throughout the Dame era. Yeah. And I feel like that's, a big part of what's powering their success right now. I mean, especially last night, like they were just basically rolling out all wing lineups all night, uh, you yeah. know, with some Anthony Simons and Drew Eubanks sprinkled in. Uh, but it's been really impressive what that wing core has managed to do. And I, yeah, I think it's definitely upped the versatility quotient on defense. And you saw that last night with their ability to just basically like run a zone <laughs> and completely flummox a, a team that, I certainly expected to be one of the best offensive teams in the league. So they deserve a ton of credit. I'm I'm curious to see how real the defense proves to be and if they can keep this up, but definitely now expecting them to be a playoff team, which I wasn't necessarily expecting coming into the season. And I also think like they're they're way outperforming their point differential right now because once yeah. again they've been great in the clutch. And I just think it's funny, like ordinarily you would see that and be like, oh, Dame's doing the Dame right. time thing again. They got three game winners this year. Two of them are from Grant and one of them's from Hart. 
You know, like yeah. that's really cool. It is. And I think that that really does speak to the balance that they have on the roster that they haven't necessarily had in the past. So great job by by their front office. I think I kind of owe them an apology because I wasn't super down on the CJ trade, but I was really down on the on the Powell and Covington trade that they made at the deadline last year. But I think the CJ trade looks great for them right now. And honestly, like Powell's been brutal with the Clippers, Covington looking borderline washed. And I actually very much like how Keon Johnson has looked for the Blazers so far. And then also, I don't remember if it was the pick they got in that trade or the pick they got in the McCollum trade, but at least one of them was the pick that they wound up using to go and get Jeremy Grant. So that deadline has actually worked out exceptionally well for them. And they're just in a way, way better position now than they were a few months ago. All right. You want to take the break, come back, talk to the last three teams. Let's do it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, we've pleasant done two surprises. pleasant surprises and one disappointment so far. Where are we going next for the disappointment? Well, why don't we just talk about the team that was on the other side of that Blazers yeah, game last makes night? Sense. Makes sense. Um, because you mentioned the Blazers coming into that game, second night of a back-to-back, very shorthanded, missing their starting point guard and starting center. And a full-strength Pelicans team couldn't solve the zone, kind of just got outplayed, outworked in a really disappointing loss for a team that is starting to rack up a bunch of disappointing losses. And look, they're 6-6 six and six so far. That's far from a catastrophe. But I just think like the way that it's looked... That's what's been disappointing to me. There have been a lot of head-scratching decisions in terms of the way that their offenses function, the way that they've used Zion. Um, You know, their three-point attempt rate, which I know is something that you've harped on a lot in the past. They're dead last, 30th in three-point attempt rate, despite the fact that they're fourth in three-point percentage. Like, they have shooters. They got McCollum, Ingram, you know, Trey Murphy, uh, and Ingram especially. Like, he... He's been great for the most part, but he's a really good shooter who's like the vast majority of his jumpers this year have been long twos. Yeah. And I know, yeah, we've talked about how this this is a team that's built to demolish teams inside and that's going to be their bread and butter. But like you would still want to see them play that off of their three-point shooting, you know, and vice versa. Like use the threat of the three to open up the rim and use the rim pressure to open up the three, but they're just not getting up enough threes right now. And even like the interior scoring, it's, I mean, again, you see them, they go up against that Blazers team that doesn't really have much rim protection playing without its starting center zoning up for almost the entire game. And they couldn't do much with it. Like they, they rolled out the Zion at the five lineup for almost the entire fourth quarter and A, that lineup couldn't even score that effectively. B, at the other end of the floor, got shredded at the rim, gave up a ton of offensive rebounds. Like, Zion has been as bad as ever defensively. Like, he, I thought he had made strides 
on that end, uh, the season before, obviously he didn't play last year, the season before last, I thought he had quietly made some strides defensively where he wasn't quite the sieve people still thought he was. But I think he's been as bad as ever on that end this year. Like, I think he's regressed again. And I don't know if it's an effort thing. I don't know if it's a mobility. Like, I, I don't know. But really, he, he, looks, he looks the exact same to me on defense, honestly. But I, I, I never thought he took any meaningful strides there. So uh, Yeah, I mean, but that's bad, though. It is. It is, for sure. Um, I, I'm almost more, and I don't know how much of it's him and how much of it is Willie Green, but like last time we saw healthy Zion, we saw a lot of point Zion. Yes. And point Zion was amazing. Yeah. And now I feel like we're barely seeing that at all. Like there, there are a lot of possessions where they're just parking him in the corner for some reason. Like CJ has been the lead initiator. Yeah, which, like, you know, obviously you want CJ to do his thing from time to time, but it just feels like it's coming at the cost of what could be some really high-value Zion on-ball possessions. And even when they are having Zion initiate, it's, like, usually from the middle of the floor or from the post, which, again, not saying that can't be effective, but, like, they, they've barely given him any ball screens this year. Like, that's... You know, the the inverted pick and roll with him and CJ should be devastating, like impossible to guard. And I, they're just not doing it. It's very strange, I feel like, the way that they have utilized him on offense. doesn't feel like they're getting the most out of him at all. Completely agree. And I'd argue that especially because of how bad he has been defensively and how that's dragged the team down on that end, you especially need to maximize him offensively. Like you need to get the most value out of Zion on the offensive end to make sure that he is a positive, like extremely positive impact player. And I think you do that by putting the ball in his hands and giving him that the reins essentially and being point Zion. I think it's a little discouraging for me on the Willie Green end, how obvious, okay, obvious might be a strong word. I mean, I, I don't want to seem like the, you know, the podcasters who actually think we could coach an NBA. Like I know like we're not coaches. I get that. But some of the stuff I'm sorry does seem obvious, whether it's like point Zion whether it is giving the remainder of Devontae Graham's minutes to Dyson Daniels, like, man, some of this stuff is just way too obvious. And I feel like we kind of did this with the Pelicans last year. I know they didn't have Zion. I know that by the end of the season, they ended up being like a feel-good story. Look, I had Willie Green as my coach of the year pick this year. So this is not like a, you know, I'm not anti-Willie Green. I, I thought he did good a good job finish last year. I picked him as my coach of the year. I, I still have high hopes for the Pelicans, but... This is two years in a row now where there is some very obvious stuff, including various very obvious rotation stuff that he figured out a little too late. Like last season, if you remember, it took half the more than half the year for him to get Garrett Temple out of his rotation, for him to cut Devontae Graham's minutes, for him to give more of a role to uh, Jose Alvarado, Trey Murphy, even Herb Jones, who was starting, got more minutes and a bigger role as a season went on and I just think like okay that's one thing to figure that stuff out last year it was a very weird season this year with the expectations with how good you should be we should not be going through this again where these very obvious rotation decisions are seemingly going to take you another half season to figure out yeah I feel like Devonte is maybe the new Garrett Temple where yeah. I just don't know that there's a place for him in that rotation right. and and Dyson minutes- Daniels is the new you know what not not play type style but still he's like the new version of Trey and Alvarado in the sense of like he's the one that needs to take the majority of those minutes even if they were just to give those minutes to Alvarado instead sure he's, fine. he's been awesome this year like I I just I I've I, I didn't hate the move 
a couple years ago when they went out and got Devontae. I thought that he could be a good fit there. It hasn't worked out. At the very least, I they can't play any more minutes with him and CJ on the floor at the same time. Like those minutes have just been yep. disastrous defensively. There's no need for them. Totally agree about about Dyson Daniels, who I think has looked really good in his limited exposure so far. Like feisty defender, has some offensive pop, super long. Like it, just his size compared to Devontae's. Like even if you don't trust him from uh, an experiential perspective or don't think that he can space the floor in the same way, it's like having him out there instead would just give your defense so much more teeth so many more teeth. I don't really know how to <laughs> how to phrase that visual metaphor, but like it would give your defense a lot more bite uh, nice. to have to have his size and his um, defensive ferocity out there compared to Devonte, who's just a bit like a piece of tissue paper out there. I hate to say, yeah, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I think that that's been weird in terms of rotation decisions. I think they've gone to the small ball well a little bit too often. Like last night's game was a good example to me. And I I will grant that JV was not having a particularly good game. Wasn't really imposing his size or, or making the Blazers hurt for their lack of interior presence. But like they kind of just played the game on Portland's terms. And they downsized to try and match them, and it just didn't work at all. Whereas, I don't know, I might have liked to have seen them there press their advantage rather than almost conceding to the way that the Blazers wanted to play that game. They're like, we have the size advantage. We have the interior advantage on both ends. We want to have like the offensive rebounding, like the interior scoring, the defensive rebounding and rim protection. Like They, they just sort of went away from that and instead their small lineup kind of got destroyed. And I just wish they were... I wish Willie Green was willing to give JV a bit of a longer leash because I feel like the the small ball, it's looked good for them at times. Like the Nance at five lineups have been pretty good, I think. But I feel like going away from what their true strength really is, it is not in the big picture like such a good idea. Like that's the strength of their team is like their, yeah. their interior scoring, their size up front their ability to play bully ball and play volleyball on the offensive glass, like lean into that. Completely agree with you. And again, not obviously not wishing any ill will in the career of uh, Willie green. I picked him to win coach of the year, but I do wonder just given the expectations around this team, how deep in the season we'd have to go with these same kind of questions and complaints before we start talking about like maybe his seat getting warm. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Man, that's just been a revolving door in New Orleans. I know, by the way. Like, I know, and that's what, like I, I definitely don't like. I, I don't think Zion's David on Griffin, his third coach. I know, man. And like, I they, definitely don't think David Griffin came into this year even thinking this conversation would be. But and I don't think it's out of the question. We got to give him more time. Oh, I agree, they do, but you know, seasons can slip away in a hurry sometimes. Yeah. Speaking of that, do you believe in any way, shape, or form? that the season could be slipping away from the defending champion Golden State Warriors, or is this very much to you? Meh, it's early. They'll figure it out. They're going to be fine. I'd say the positive indicator for them is that, for the most part, the starters have been fine. Like, the starters are beating teams. The guys the guys who you know will be starters on the Starters are court, killing teams. Let's be clear. The, 
Yeah, the guys who you know will be on the court for the biggest moment, if it was the playoffs right now and those guys need to play 35, 40, something more, they'd be fine, I think. But even if they knew that this year was going to be somewhat of a transitional year from the bench perspective with all those young guys, Wiseman and Kaminga especially, I don't think they quite realized how much of a learning curve those guys. Like, I don't know if they realized... They may have underestimated how far behind those guys are, at least collectively. It's one thing for them to be, you know, one or two of them to be playing with the stars. It's another thing for them, a lot of them to be playing together off the bench, coughing up every lead the starters build. Their scoring, their total scoring margin, which I know can be skewed by minutes played and all that. We're not talking about net rating or point of like average. We're talking about total, but their total scoring margin as a bench is like more than a hundred points worse than the next worst bench. It's been awful. Jordan Poole, again, I know part of it is because of the guys he's been playing with off that bench. Poole has not been good to me. Like I, He has been a detriment to them so far, which is a concern given the money they just gave him. He should iron it out, but I don't know. Concerning. Here the Warriors sit, four and seven. At what point would you go from, eh, it's early, they'll be fine, to like, all right, we, we got a problem on our hands? Well, they do have a problem on their hands and it's the bench, right? Like that's, I don't think it will be this bad throughout the course of the year. And again, I would be, I would feel better about the fact that the starters are still killing teams than I would feel bad about the fact that the bench has been bleeding points, but they're going to have to do something to address it at some point. And like, it it obviously hasn't helped that DiVincenzo has been injured. Like they lost... Gary Payton the second, Otto Porter, and Damian Lee in the offseason. And then one of the guys that they brought in to sort of shore up the second unit has been out of the lineup. But th- I think they would have hoped or expected to have seen more progress from their young players than they've seen. And especially like Kaminga, who not only hasn't made progress, but seems to have regressed, where he yeah. was actually playing minutes in the playoffs last year. And he looked I, like a positive impact guy in limited minutes last year, which is, yeah. And he still, I mean like his physical tools pop off the screen and you can see how, I mean, I, you know, maybe part of the problem is like last year, I felt like they were utilizing him as a big for the most part. And I guess with some of the units that he's playing with coming off of the bench, he's having to play more like a wing and maybe that's impacting him. But I don't know. I mean, he just like, he hasn't been good in any capacity, offensively, defensively. And Moody, I think, has been more or less fine. But again, hasn't like shown a ton of progress necessarily. Like, I feel like he still gets lost defensively. Defense has been the big issue with the bench, right? Like, they're completely dragging down the team's defense as a whole, which was second best in basketball last year and is now in like the bottom 10 or maybe even the bottom five. And those second units are, again, just bleeding points. And uh, we mentioned Wiseman, like (sighs) when we talked about him, like when we did the the episode about like the, the interesting swing players and him being part of it, one of the things I remember talking about was how in his rookie season, the Warriors actually had him playing like up at the level of the screen, a surprising amount. And I wondered if that was because they thought he was good at that or just because they didn't think that he knew how to play drop. And this year I feel like they're 
almost exclusively playing in him in drop and it looks like he doesn't know how to play drop you know like he's his positioning is just all wrong like he's got his yeah. body turned in the wrong way he gets caught in between where he's not impacting the ball but he's still giving up the lob and i it just very much looks like he's figuring out what well, to do and how to use his size on the defensive end and it's he I very mean, much looks like a guy who hasn't played a lot of basketball the last few years yeah that's true um and yeah to your point is like figuring things out you know if someone had told you uh warriors start four and seven after winning their fourth title and i like, just like going through it and i think the like, overarching narrative would be like the end of the warriors or they're finally at like father time is undefeated the old guys are probably cooked whatever what i think is so ironic about this like it's the exact opposite. It's like the young guys who are supposed to help them keep the window open are actually the ones where if this were to go on the whole season would actually be the ones helping close it. I think that's really ironic. Very disappointing if you're the Warriors. Again, I know it's early. Things can change. But yeah, it's it like, yeah. for example, Steph has been friggin' amazing to start the season. And you'd think if someone had just showed you what Steph was for the first few weeks of the season, not that it would have surprised you, but you'd been like, holy hell, typical Steph playing, you know, incredible basketball, as good as almost anyone in the league so far. And the Warriors are four and seven. It's just, yeah. it's, uh, they're, they're, by the way, you guys like, are dragging them down so much. I know. Uh, and, and obviously Clay, who just like didn't touch a basketball seemingly all off season. Yeah. Has, has been pretty rough. Uh, and I think that he will come around slowly but surely over the course of the season but apart from that like draymond more or less looks like draymond and wiggins has been awesome like i I really like everything i've seen from wiggins in terms of his decisiveness on offense his defense at the point of attack like andrew wiggins is their second best player now so far this season he has been without a doubt and i i don't know i mean maybe that's cause for concern but (laughs) also i just I wonder, I guess, whether this reality makes the front office sort of take a long, hard look at the situation the team's in and let's go of this notion of, oh, we're building along two timelines and like we can win now and also build this bridge to the future and win big in the future too. Like, I wonder if, I know it's early to give up on some of these guys, but I just wonder if they say, given the lack of progress we've seen, given how disastrous this has been, given, you know, you watch Steph Curry and it doesn't really look like the window is closing for that guy. He's still preposterous. But I just, any way you slice it, it's like, I don't care how good you think this next generation of Warriors is going to be. They're not going to be Steph, Clay, and Draymond. They're just not. And then you get into, I guess it's it's tough because, okay, what if they did decide, yeah, no, forget it. We're cashing these guys in. We're trading them. Like what trade value would they have around the league? What trade value would James Wiseman have right now? That's what I was going to say. Like James Wiseman's trade value right now, even if you're not even like the biggest Wiseman believer, you would still have to acknowledge that his trade value right now is not going to reflect what his actual ceiling is. Not even close. Yeah. So then... From that perspective, it's like, okay, if they if these guys don't really have any trade value, then maybe they are just better off holding on to them and seeing if they can develop them and and get this thing moving in a more positive direction. Like I and I think it will. I I 
said off the off the top like i i don't think it's going to continue to be this bad but i i don't know i mean can the warriors win another championship with their bench in this condition i think it's going to be gonna really do tough something to, do. to compete with the jazz and the blazers of the world <laughs> for real <laughs> Uh, I think that's a good way to tie that all up. All right, so yeah. we we have one more team that we're going to talk about. I would, they're one of your, I guess, picks for surprises. I'd consider them more like an honorable mention, but I'm going to let you cook on them. But uh, since I consider them more of an honorable mention and they're a surprise, we'll save the, I guess, you know, the positive vibes for last. I just want to mention, I'll throw a quick honorable mention disappointment out there, even though they're 500. That's the Mavericks. Now, disappointing maybe just based on how you viewed them coming in. Not Me. disappointing when you go by how predictable it's been. That there's way too much on Luca's shoulders. You know, that that's the obvious thing. There's a weird dynamic there where like Christian Wood, I still think, was a great pickup for them. But I think the, the person who disagrees with that the most is Jason Kidd, if you look at the way he's been utilized. Anyway, the only thing I wanted to point out is that the Mavs just got swept in a road back-to-back through Orlando and Washington to a Magic team that was missing Paolo Banquero and a bunch of other guys, and then to a Wizards team that was missing Beal and Porzingis. So we can maybe talk Mavs on another episode. I just did want to throw out that if, if I had an honorable mention disappointment in the West right now, and it, it's weird to say because I the, the, all the concerns there are ones I already had. It's not like anything there has surprised me, but I still think overall, especially their last couple losses have pushed them into disappointment territory. So I'll give them the honorable mention before I let you have the mic for this quote unquote honorable mention surprise team that is four and seven. Yeah, they're four and seven, the Oklahoma City Thunder I'm talking about, but the, it's been kind of an impressive four and seven. Like they just no, I get you. look I get you. like a very competent NBA team, which is not necessarily something I thought I would be saying about this team coming into the year. And, you know, they've notched a couple impressive wins, like their point differential is actually pretty solid. Uh, it's in the red still, but like it's it's closer to even than we've seen it in the last few years. They just look they just look solid. And I think they're still top 10 in defense, right? Which is, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, look at their team. Does that look like a top 10 defense to you? No, it definitely doesn't. They're playing above their heads on that end. But I think that's also, you know, um, a credit to Mark Dagno, who I understand that it's a results-driven business. It's a win-driven business. And so I get it when a coach's reputation can be muddied by the wins and losses and the losses have piled up for Mark Dagno in Oklahoma city. But I think if you've watched them the last couple of years, there is like an organization there. They're, they play an organized brand of basketball. They just haven't had the talent or their roster consistency. It's almost been more like a G league team between the talent and the injuries and guys in and out of the lineup. But especially this year on the defensive end, they're just like a very organized team. So I do think that, you know, a team can lose and you can still end up being able to like, pinpoint certain players that despite the losing should be part of the core going forward. I definitely think in this case, Daniel's coaching is one of those things where you can point to it and be like, you know, the team has mostly been trash, but you see things there where it's like, but I do think he could be the right coach for them, even when they're good. Like, I think he will be given the chance to grow with them. Yeah. He's got them playing a really aggressive brand of defense. Like they just pressure the hell out of the ball. And that's been kind of the driver of their success at that end. They're, third in opponent turnover rate so I guess that is sort of how they've overcome the lack of individual defensive talent yeah I guess you know Lugens Dort not included 
just by by harassing opposing teams. And I think, you know, the ability to put that much pressure on the ball and they're actually doing it without fouling a ton. Like I, I went to check just because watching them, I figured being a, a young team that puts that much pressure on the ball, that they would probably be like dead last in opponent free throw rate, but they're actually only 18th. So hmm. uh, they're turning teams over a lot without fouling a ton. And I think that is sort of what has made this work. Um, and Dort's been good, and, and Darius Baisley has been good on that end. And Shea, who I want to spend the last few minutes of this segment talking about, Shea has actually been good defensively, which is not something that you would have really said about him at any other point in his career. Yeah. So have there been 10 players in basketball better than Shea Gilgis-Alexander this season? No, he's been an absolute superstar to start the year. It's insane. Uh, 25 drives per game, which is the most in the league for the third straight year. But again, he's also competing like hell on defense and he's shooting the ball really well. Not necessarily from three, but he's at 50% on long twos. Insane. And most impressively to me, shooting 74% at the rim and taking 38% of his shots at the rim on a team with minimal spacing that shoots 30% from deep. That's better only than the Lakers who might be the worst shooting team in NBA history. (laughs) So not only is he having to navigate a maze of help defenders on every drive and still getting to the rim a ton and shooting 74% there, but you also see he's like creating so many open looks with his drive and kicks that just go for not because the team can't shoot. It's like almost scary to think what his numbers could look like in a better offensive environment. Doing this season is, preposterous so i had to have them in here because i really wanted to talk about shay he's so good and i also wanted to say to you cash your boy poku kind of a functional nba rotation player man signs of life signs of life he's he's shooting it okay i mean he's definitely shooting it with confidence which obviously has never been an issue for him but i think just like the quick trigger and the willingness to shoot uh, off of the catch means that he draws closeouts and he's able to turn those into some pump and go drives. And I think he's looked better putting the ball on the floor. The passing hasn't been quite as wild, but he's got the high hands on defense and has been fairly disruptive at that end. He's, you know, grabbing defensive rebounds and pushing the ball up the floor by himself. Like you can definitely see the outline of the type of player that I know you have long believed he's capable of becoming. And you know, he's still a ways away. He's still very yep. raw. Like, yep. let's not get too excited. He's not bull bull. <laughs> but, you know, I think maybe he could be next season's bull bull or maybe even like the second half of this season's right. bull bull. Like that's, he's, he's really coming along. He's also still 20 years old. That's it, wild. Right. I know that like age can't be everything. Like a guy can be young and it doesn't mean he's going to be good. I get that. Some older rookies end up having great career. Like I get all that. But Part of what just continued to fascinate me with Poku is that he was very much learning on the fly, still is, still getting comfortable being a pro, still, you know, I talked about James Wiseman looking like a guy who hasn't played a lot, like Poku very much looked like that early in his career and still does on a lot of night, but he is like learning those tough lessons in the NBA. 
and in front of NBA observers. And I think that was the difference. Like if Poku came to the NBA, like say he was draft eligible this year, right? As a 20 year old being exactly what he is now. And then he comes into the league next year and is a little more molded than he was when he first got there and started playing heavy minutes for a very bad team. I think it, it would shape your perception differently, right? Whereas it's like he was going through and continues to go through a lot of those growing pains at the NBA level, which you could argue is like a blessing and a curse because a lot of young guys wouldn't have got that chance in the NBA. But a lot of on the flip side, a lot of those guys wouldn't have been making those mistakes in front of NBA people and fans and observers, right? So I think it's a double-edged sword there. But yeah, um, the fact that he's kind of gone through all that is starting to look like a functional NBA player, which again, I will add, like the last two, two and a half months of last season, there were these signs. Just, you know, he's doing it now on a team that is a little more competitive, at least to start the season. But, you know, going through all that, and he's still just 20 years old. Like there were a lot of guys that just got drafted that are rookies right now that are older than him. He won't be 21 till December. Like I still see this really high ceiling for him. And maybe he never gets there. But the, those physical tools and how young he still is and, in I think what will turn out to be like a good like a good environment eventually in OKC, I still think man there is something there. Yeah, man. I mean, look, it'll be interesting to see like if they get another high pick this year, right? And then Chet's back next year. Yeah. I mean, the, things are starting to percolate a Dude, little I, bit in OKC. You get Chet back next year. You probably get another high pick. You know, I think I think they go into next year actually ready and willing to win. Not win at the highest level, but like, I don't think they go into next year with everyone questioning about whether their motives will still be to tank. I think when they go into next year, they will be ready to start trying to really win. And I think they will pretty quickly too. Like I can very much see this team, if they, if they didn't strip anything down this year and they don't, there's no strategic injuries later in the year. I could see them hanging around maybe the play in race later in the year where, especially in the West, I think like that 10th seed might still be pretty bad. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that the Thunder are like within a few games of that late in the season. But I think next year is the year where if Chet comes back healthy, they get another high pick, probably make some moves. Near, like I, I think they go into next season as a team that probably makes the, like should make the play and goes into next season with play and expectations. I would like to see it. I would like to see Shea Gilgis Alexander playing meaningful yeah. basketball games. Yeah. Maybe the most unique star yeah. in the game today, just with the way that he moves his body and evades defenders. A swiveling, slippery driver. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Let's swivel and slip on out of here. <laughs> yeah, Shea's been incredibly fun to watch. Uh, and I think as they get healthy and even somehow add more young talent to that team the thunder will be fun to watch as well all right i think that does it for our conversation about the most surprising and disappointing teams in the west no make or miss today because it's a two episode week and when we do two episodes we only do make or miss in the first episode of the week so we can go right to the fan shout out fan shout out this week goes to muhammad in toronto we know nothing else about muhammad other than the fact that we Met him at uh, the Rogers slash Sportsnet Studios in Toronto on Wednesday. We were there to do the Raptors show with Will Lou. And uh, I met Muhammad on my way into the building. He recognized me, shouted out Pound the Rock. I told him we'd get him a shout out on the next episode. He appreciated that. But I know we know, I mean, we're going to assume he's a Raptors fan. He's based in Toronto, um, but we don't know how long he's been listening or anything like that. But still, Muhammad, thanks for the support. Thanks for the 15 seconds of friendly chatter at the Sportsnet Studios earlier this week. 
Uh, I will give the usual call out to all of our listeners, whether first time listeners today or listeners for the 266th time. We want to hear from you and get you a shout out because we appreciate you supporting the show and allowing us to do what we do. So hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfond at the score.com, joseph.cacharo at the score.com. Or find me on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know where you listen from, how long you've been listening, uh, what you like or don't like about the show. We'll get you a future shout out. And I do want to add too, if anyone listening today is listening from Jamaica, hit us up. I want to hear from you because going through some of the numbers uh, this week, I noticed that for this past week, we were a top 40 sports podcast in Jamaica. And I think the second, or we might've been the highest uh, rated basketball podcast in Jamaica. Like if you go through their sports podcasts on the charts, it was all soccer for the most part and then pound the rock. So there's some audience out there in Jamaica listening to pound the rock, boosting our numbers out there. Is that Jamaica Queens though? Or are we <laughs> no, no. not the, the no. New York neighborhood? No. It was countries. It was Jamaica, the country. So Yeah. There's some listenership out there. And if if that's you, we want to hear from you. Hit us up. All right. Until next week, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.